Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I think there's a whole minefield of ethical dilemmas here and, and issues that are made extra difficult by, first of all, the fact that 99% of people don't understand any of it or any of the terminology. And two, the 1% that do are able to use that understanding to make money and raise venture capital and launch startups rather than, you know, giving public service announcements and things of that nature. All right, Look Up listeners, welcome back to another episode of the Look Up podcast. Today is September 26, 2020, and we are heading into the month before the 2020 U.S. election. Uh, crazy times ahead. I don't expect that the volatility in economic markets, in political discourse, in civil disobedience will um, will subside anytime soon, and uh, we'll I'll continue to be tracking that and potentially sharing another uh, solo episode on on that topic in the near future. But today's episode uh, is an incredible one. I had the opportunity to sit down with Lloyd Danzig, a friend of mine from the University of Pennsylvania. Lloyd is now the chairman and founder of the International Consortium for the Ethical Development of Artificial Intelligence. Uh, the short form of that is ICED. AI. He's also the founder and CEO of Sharp Alpha Advisors, a sports gaming advisory firm with a focus on companies deploying cutting edge tech, and the co-host of the AI Experience, a podcast providing an accessible analysis of relevant AI news and topics. Lloyd has an incredible background. Before all of his work with Sharp and Ice AI, he managed institutional portfolios at BlackRock, where he was leading data science initiatives, um, and at Samsung, building machine learning engines for sportsbook operators. He knows data, and he knows machine learning and artificial intelligence better than anyone that I've ever met. And he has a skill at making it accessible for folks like me who are just still learning about it. And so I learned a ton about the differences even between artificial intelligence, automation, machine learning, and deep learning. We talked about how each of us are interacting with deep learning algorithms on a daily basis, something like 85% of us do so already. We talk about why humans have such a hard time predicting outcomes, uh, why we need to leave some kind of open opening for us to just appreciate that we're very bad at predicting uh, partially because of the cognitive biases that we carry, and Lloyd explains some of those. We talk about why prediction markets and the law of large numbers or the wisdom of the crowds uh, actually can be the best form of predicting outcomes when there's some skin in the game. And we also discuss God as a supercomputer, the metaverse, and free will. I said this at the end of the episode of a disclaimer. There was no acid or other psychedelic substance taken at the beginning of this recording. Uh, we just really cover a lot of ground and it gets super heady at times. 
one that I had to listen to twice even to write the show notes. So I hope that you all enjoy it. Uh, I'm looking forward to potentially inviting Lloyd back on the show again at some time in the near future. Just a really incredible conversation. And with that, I will leave you to the episode. So this is Lloyd Danzig. All right. So Lloyd, welcome to the Look Up podcast. Thanks for hopping on. Great to be here, Mark. Great, great to see you again. It's, it's, it's been a while. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we were just chatting a little bit about about the current COVID situation in, in New York versus Europe where I am. And um, obviously, uh, one thing I found interesting about that brief, brief chat was, um, you know, you are someone that deals a lot in predictive modeling. And we, we were chatting about how the Jets and Giants are um, not have already declared that they won't have any fans in the stands for the entire season, uh, which, you know, overlapping with sports and prediction models, like this is a little bit, seems a little bit overkill given that we don't really know where we're going to be in, in two months, let alone six months. But what do you, what do you think about that? I, I mean, I think the reason it's especially weird, just in general, people are, constantly overconfident in their abilities to predict things, overconfident that past performance will be indicative of future results as every single private placement memorandum says it should not be and all that good stuff. Uh, But what's particularly weird about this is to me, the number one characteristic about the whole COVID pandemic is how unpredictable it has been at every step and how every leading expert in the world basically just got it wrong because it seemed to have been such a black swan, once in a lifetime, perfect storm sort of event. And it's like, usually as humans, we need some sort of catastrophe to learn our lesson in any way. But I would have hoped that with the recency of our failure to adequately predict things over COVID leading to deaths and misfortune, that we would be taking more caution at virtually every step and hedging our bets and saying, maybe this, this with an asterisk on it. Uh, It doesn't really seem that people on either side, you know, are are really doing that. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, it cuts in both directions, being overly, overly strict for, you know, for football season in this particular instance, as well as, you know, saying it's, it's nothing, it's just the flu and, you know, not making any changes up front when we really didn't know just how bad it could be and it was growing exponentially. And so it does cut both ways. You said a couple of interesting things there that I want to lean into. Um, One, you know, you called it, you called COVID a black swan event. Uh, My kind of sense is that it's, it's actually a white swan event in that we, we could have predicted that there was going to be some kind of pandemic. You know, folks had been speaking about this for some time, you know, with SARS and MERS, um, before, before COVID-19 and, and now, um, you know, now here we are, I guess, you know, you do a lot of predictive analytics, so maybe it's cool for the listeners to think about, to learn what is the difference between like a black swan and a white swan? Yeah. So, so I think that first of all, just to, to answer your point, um, I, I, I agree with you there's an interesting, I think almost comment or insight maybe about human nature and policymaking here. You are absolutely right. We can go back the last five, 10 years and find tons of TED Talks and things about pandemics and pandemic preparedness and and stuff of that nature. You know, people think that a nationwide or a global vaccine 
that's mandated is something new, but every one of us in the U.S. gets measles, mumps, and rubella shots, you know, when you're young, before you go to school. How do you think those vaccines started out? Well, the pandemics at one point didn't exist, and then they did, and then they had to create vaccines that, that were sort of mandated. And so what it seems is that there's a difference between the ability of, you know, a few people in academia or even a lot of people to foresee something on the horizon and then their ability to actually make policies or get, you know, the lay person to get excited about that. I'm sure a lot of people who espouse climate change active, you know, activism have a similar frustration that people don't seem to express much urgency until their house is the one underwater in the AI space. You know, a lot of ethical issues that relate to the way AI could impact society in the future. I, I similarly see frustrations where when the fear is abstract, people have a hard time responding to it. On the other hand, people like a concrete sort of common enemy. Um, I, I think that, you know, now that we are talking about black swan events and that Nassim Taleb has, you know, written the book, it's almost kind of hard to even describe what a black swan event is anymore, because in mm. theory, you know, to the extent that we are aware of them or aware of our unknowns, you know, now that we are more aware of the economic or personal impact of the unknowable unknowns, even if we can't pinpoint them specifically, should we not be allocating in whatever position we are in the world, you know, certain probabilities to these really good or really bad, low probability, high impact situations. So you ask the question kind of what's the difference between a black swan and, and white swan event? I think my answer to you is I don't really know anymore. And it depends who you talk to and, and what their approach is, because it seems that there's enough empirical evidence to say that there is nothing that can't be predicted within the realm of, you know, typical markets. And, and especially when we look at things in retrospect, it seems like everything could have been predicted. Oh, of course we should have shorted the housing market in 2008. You know, that was so mm -hmm. obvious when I read the big short and then, you know, watched the movie version with Steve Carell later. So Great movie. my answer to your question is very much a non-answer because I think that as much as it is very, very important to learn about, you know, Six Sigma events and very unlikely things, a lot of things that get labeled black and white swans, even though I literally am guilty of this from five minutes ago, are only <laughs> done in retrospect with the benefit of hindsight. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a that's a great response. I um, you know, I I'm curious. You also mentioned just like this is an interesting case of just showing how poor people are at at predicting events. Um, can you can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I I think that being poor at predicting events is just one of the many symptoms of the cognitive biases that really impact people in their day-to-day -day life and particularly in ways that they don't really understand. So I think a good uh, analogy that is used to, to drive home just how hard it is to be cognitively consistent for a second, but before we get into why people are so bad at predicting. Most people like to think of themselves as being well-informed. In fact, almost no one likes to think of themselves as being misinformed. You might think that people are misinformed, but almost certainly they don't think of themselves as that. <laughs> and, right? and people like being right. People like being correct. And people like holding logically consistent views. 
So imagine, you know, somehow you were thrust into this world from the ether, a total blank slate on your brain, and you start assembling viewpoints, uh, you know, about the world. You know, climate activism is good or bad. You know, abortion rights are good or bad. And, and you start listing these. And each time you add something to the list, you want to check it against your existing assumptions to make sure it doesn't conflict. You don't want to start by saying, I only eat meat, and then later say, I think vegetarianism is the only moral diet, because that will be a very hard way to go about living. And what you start to realize, you know, just from the math, you very quickly get an exponentially increasing number of combinations to check. When you have one viewpoint, there's nothing to reconcile it against. When you have two, well, you just compare them. When you have three, you need to compare each pair and then all three. When you have four, you need to compare each pair, each trio, and all four. And so you can see that this gets much, much larger very, very quickly. And the point is that if you were to try to comprehend 300 different viewpoints, you know, I like apples, I don't like bananas, whatever it is, and you wanted to verify all the different pairs, even if to do that, you used a supercomputer that was the size of the universe with transistors that were as small as atoms working at speeds at the speed of light that had been operating since the dawn of the universe, you would only now be finalizing the calculation on whether your 300th viewpoint is consistent with all of the other 299. Holy shit. <laughs> that is just like a somewhat absurd mathematical way of showing that even the smartest humans will never be able to hold totally consistent viewpoints throughout their whole lives because I'm talking about an oversimplified example. Human thoughts and opinions are not binary. And it simply is just a computational nightmare. So when you ask, you know, why do people make such bad predictions? Well, first of all, they're not very good at, at holding on to a consistent view of the world. And then there's all these biases that you hear of, for example, recency bias. Recency bias is where you consider events that were more recent in the past as being weighted more heavily because they feel more salient emotionally, even though they aren't necessarily for the given case. Another type of undetected bias that comes up very frequently in, in the stock market, for example, is called survivorship bias. If you go and look at all the hedge funds in the world, you'd say, oh, my God, every single hedge fund manager is very, very rich. Therefore, I should start a hedge fund because what you are not including in your data is all the hedge funds that were started and went bankrupt and failed. Because when you look at the current available sample size, by definition, you are only looking at data points that survived whatever it was that you yourself should be worried about. And so there's a whole list. You probably, there's probably a great Wikipedia page on cognitive biases. So I think there's all, all of these things. And then on top of it, in the U.S. in particular, but in other places, every argument has become some combination of politicized. Or what it seems has happened is most people have lost an inability to separate a criticism about an idea that they support from a criticism about them as a person and their own moral character. So people end up really just looking for another bias, confirmation bias, data that supports what they already believe. People end up really just making predictions that are supported by evidence that comes only from, you know, their echo chamber 
ignore things that don't necessarily. And I think that it's a combination of just maybe natural human instincts, humans being pattern recognizers, and just the fact that, you know, people have a hard time separating the concepts of criticism about an idea versus criticism about a person who holds that idea. Yeah, there's a lot there. So I'm gonna I'm gonna even like recap that. So we're talking about cognitive bias, we're talking about recency bias, survivorship bias, and then confirmation bias. And all three, and we we as humans are susceptible to all three of those independently. And then to your point about kind of the combinations of different ideas, when you compound those on one another, even one of them can explain why we make poor predictions. But all three of them together um, really make make it probably more likely than not that we're going to make in, incorrect predictions. So, I mean, I want to get to your background as well, but I guess just one question that that comes from that thread is how can we protect ourselves knowing that we hold these biases? How can we how can we improve our predictive decision making as individuals? So I think the well, it's not a problem with that question. The problem with that question is, is simply that the people who most need to hear the answer will never ask that question. And that is one of the biggest problems. The people that's why are, we have this format. That's why we have podcasts. And so I can ask the question and they can listen and be like, oh, I wouldn't think to ask that question before. You know what? <laughs> even so though, uh, and look, I would be thrilled if anyone, even a single listener looks up one of these biases and realizes a way that it's been impacting their life. But I would bet anything, I've listened to your other episodes, I'm sure your audience over-indexes as people who are intellectually curious and search for these things. All that said, you know, your, your question of how, how can we, you know, you know, disabuse ourselves of these biases, make better predictions. There's one very simple answer, but for many people, it's not so simple to carry out which is making sure to whatever it is that you're interested in, whatever your job is, your passion is, your hobby is, make sure you're getting information not only from both sides, but you know, maybe from a centrist side. So if you are in the financial markets, you should definitely read an article from MSNBC, an article from Fox News, and one from Reuters. Get the right-leaning side, the left-leaning side, and the middle. You know, it's just like how on Amazon, usually the three-star reviews are the most useful because those are the people who actually are going to write the comments and the one and five-star reviews are, are much more extreme and people who are either just pissed or trying to, you know, boost the sales. I, I think you have something similar here. Now, the problem is you have to be monitoring yourself as you do this. If you lean left and every time you read a right-leaning source, you notice yourself totally disregarding, right, rolling your eyes, then, then you're almost kind of defeating the purpose. You know, I think everyone has their own ways of reading, consuming, and learning. For me, I love going on Reddit and looking at comments that have been upvoted a lot more than they've been downvoted. So there's a bit of a user-generated curation that happens. It's very hard for a comment to get 10,000 more upvotes than it got downvotes on Reddit if there's absolutely nothing interesting or relevant to the topic at hand. And so when there's a major story, again, if you lean left, you can go on the Republican or the conservative subreddit and not only read like an article with a quote, because that almost never works out, but read the back and forth and the discussion and how people who seem to be informed and believe the opposite of what you believe 
are articulating their defense of whatever the, the case is. And I, I just, the last thing I'll mention on the, the, the news, you know, it's great to be aware of what's going on and current on topical events and all that. But I would, I always like to point out anyone who has ever read a news story that was written about, you know, an event that they were at, or maybe even anyone who has ever read a, a news story with an interview about them knows that what happened at the original event or the original interview is so fundamentally different from the story that ends up running. And what you have to think about is what are the odds that I am the only person that has ever written a story about them that was totally divorced from the reality of how I would have told it? <laughs> Pretty much zero. Most likely every single story would have a subject at the center that has a similar mentality. So I'm a big fan of the wisdom of the crowds. You get a lot of people averaging opinions together and you kind of naturally get rid of the outliers and stuff. But I think it's, it's a responsibility that any person can take if they're truly dedicated to it, to look at what the other side is saying, look at how smart, respectable people on that side articulate their points and things of that nature. So a couple of follow-up questions to that. Um, the and that was, that was really great response. And I, I agree that, um, you know, you, it's important to collect data from opposing view, views. It's important to identify, um, all of the, uh, try to identify the, the myriad of viewpoints. And also I, I'm not 100% certain. I agree with the, um, the law of averages when it comes to human opinion, because when I think about Reddit, this is not so much a question. I'm just thinking out loud. When I think about Reddit um, upvotes, I think I wonder if like if the most informative, accurate opinions get upvoted or if the most sensational, because I know maybe Reddit's different. But when I think about other social media platforms, it seems like the most sensational or maybe Reddit is Reddit is curated differently because um, it's not algorithmic. I think I let, let, let me add something because I agree with you. I think you make a great point. And part of my reference was pulling from the work I do in sports betting and gaming markets. And I'll, I'll tell you why I think there's an important distinction. There is ample academic literature that, that shows that the best predictive features that we can look at to gauge the out, likelihood of an outcome of a sporting event come from betting markets with the highest amounts of liquidity and the implied probability by the odds you know right when the super bowl starts is usually the best predictor of the actual probabilities that we have now the difference is that it costs money to place a sports bet that you can lose whereas you can upvote something on reddit for free and make six thousand troll accounts and do the same so i would say that the caveat, which makes you absolutely right, and that, of course, you know, the most upvoted Reddit post should not be seen as some sort of truth, um, is that wisdom of the crowd is very powerful when there is some sort of skin required to be mm -hmm. in that crowd. Uh, otherwise, I would agree with you 100%. It, it, at least a little bit, if not completely, starts to lose meaning. And that's why I think um, I, I find a lot of these crypto experiments super interesting. I don't know if you've had any chance to dive in, but I've been in that market for the last three years. And there was previously like one of the early platforms was called Steemit. And Steemit was Reddit, but you actually had to stake your Steemit tokens in order to upvote. You had to pay something to upvote and you were building a reputation 
in terms of financial gains by being by having um, uh, shared information that gets upvoted. And so now people are putting skin in the game and you're receiving skin in the game and reputation over time. And there's another platform that's launching soon called Ideas Market, which is actually trying to do exactly as you say, put skin in the game for, um, for information sources like political news, where folks have, and you know, you get into some issues with that as well, because the challenges of plutocracy and, you know, my million dollars to, I I was going to say someone's name that I'm not going to say because he's too politicized, but a million dollars to Bill Ackman is not the same as a million dollars to, to me. Right. And so he might be able to put a million dollars to sway an outcome that makes him billions behind an idea. Now that's not necessarily, that's probably what's happening in the background anyways, at least this is public. So you get to see who voted on what with their dollars. Um, and then, you know, whereas like in existing systems with lobbying and, and PR and, and comms and paying for that, you don't really know exactly who's paying for the information to get disseminated to you. Um, I wanted to follow up with a question. Let, can, let me just make two points though on, on what you said, because yeah. I think there's, there's a couple of really interesting things there. Um, first of all, you know, one of the main arguments that is happening right now in tons of industries, sports betting, cannabis, all over the blockchain space is, is people going back and forth and, and no one has really figured out where they land yet, or, or at least we haven't figured out how we land as a policymaking body yet. Some people will say things like you cannot allow such a, you know, ideas market to exist because it will facilitate the type of activity that you're describing. And then other people say, no, 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 this activity is happening anyway. We want to bring it out into the open and be able to track it and audit it. Sports betting has the exact same arguments made all the time and, and lots of things do. And I think we're going to start seeing, especially in the blockchain space, my second point was going to be, as people want to pursue ICOs, initial coin offerings more and more, and make sure that their tokens get labeled as utility tokens instead of securities, you're going to, I think, only see an increase in attempts to gamify and tokenize the experience in a way that gives that token utility rather than it yes. just being a security. And to me, that's kind of what you were describing is, is both of those are innovative ways to give that token, not just a monetary value, but a utility on the platform. Uh, so I think we should definitely expect to see you know, people are talking about, uh, you know, decentralized finance, you know, moving corporate governance onto the blockchain, yeah. all sorts of things. Akon is about to launch his city with the Acoin, uh, yep. maybe, I mean, allegedly. So the point is, I just wanted to point out, I think your, your finger was on the pulse of something that we're about to be seeing a lot more of. You might take it for granted as information that's second nature to you, but it certainly isn't to most regulators and even to most investors, but I think that's changing. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, w- what excites me most about the cryptocurrency and blockchain space is this kind of petri dish of experimentation in governance um, and in the way that that group decisions get made and are understood, which is you know fundamentally a coordination problem. And blockchain is a, is at its core a coordination technology for folks that don't know and operate under the opinion that they the belief that they should not trust the other folks in the network and it's the network itself and the rules of the game that have been created that that one can trust and that's all bitcoin is is just bitcoin is like the largest cryptocurrency by by market cap and dollar value invested is really a coordination tool that i can send you dollars across the world and never have met you and know that they will get there 
um, without trusting a third party institution to uh, to mediate. That I agree with that on, on on all accounts. I do say it's, I will say though I know one problem that people sometimes have either raising venture capital for a blockchain project or selling it otherwise is that there's this weird like twisted almost dark irony right now where although blockchain offers primarily you know transparency and security and all that because a lot of people are technophobes and because distributed immutable ledger sounds really intimidating sometimes the lesson or the vibe that people pull away from a blockchain pitch is actually completely the opposite of what it was supposed to accomplish and look that's just like an early adoption market education problem but i do see that frustration happen a lot yeah for sure i think there's like there's an opacity behind the the language of what it is right and the words that you just used you know would would be intimidating and that's why i think we do have a communication problem um, but it's just like, in my opinion, it's just like the early internet. Like, I don't know what's happening behind my my Gmail account, right? I don't understand the protocols that make up, and the average person doesn't understand the protocols that make up email or the internet itself. But I know that when I type in a word in Google, that it's going to return some list to me, right? And usually in in a pretty predictive way. So I think once we get to that place with with blockchain, where it's just kind of the pipes in the background. Um, for this internet of value or for just coordination, I think that um, I think that that problem will be solved, and we might be ten years away from that. I'm not 100% sure what's going to make you know more people um, interested in the industry, which has I think about 400,000 wallets as of as of this recording. Which you know, if you assume the average crypto user has you know two to ten wallets. Um, you know, maybe that's 200,000 to, I don't know, 40,000 people that, that hold crypto. So, um, that's, uh, that's yeah, super, super crazy. I actually, I, I wanted to ask you a question on your previous, like going back two steps, uh, you know, because you're, we're, we're collating all of this information to, to make accurate predictions, um, and really gathering, gathering data. I guess the question then becomes, this is more of like an existential question. Do you believe that there is one, I guess there's in, in sports betting, there's always going to be a clear outcome. There's going to be someone that wins or someone that loses. But in general, do you believe that there's one universal truth and that humans just don't have the ability to access it because of these issues? Or do you... What do you think about that? So first of all, what's interesting about sports betting is that, yes, there is an outcome, but at least as far as we are concerned right now, the true probability of a team winning cannot be known ahead of time. The best model in the world can get close, but unlike roulette, where we know the exact probability or blackjack or poker because they're discrete and predefined, there is, at least right now, no way of truly knowing what the true probability is. And by the way, that brings up an interesting problem in, in statistics and prediction. If you say you're, you're wearing a Dodgers hat right now, if you say that the Dodgers are 70% likely to win a game tonight and they lose, were you wrong or right? Probably neither of those, because neither of those <laughs> words is good. There are, there, there are techniques. There's something called a Breyer score that is sometimes used as sort of a heuristic to gauge the accuracy. But the point is, it's not totally clear. Now, my sense 
of the sports betting thing that I think will extrapolate and generalize out to an answer to your question is that if we had a sufficiently powerful supercomputer, and maybe it's like super duper computer would be a better word because supercomputer is what we have now. And I'm talking about something way more advanced. If we had such a computer that could measure the position, orientation, and velocity of every single subatomic particle or string or whatever the heck the, the underlying you know, stuff that makes up the universe is, whatever that is, if we had a computer that could see all of those things and crunch all of that data, well, then I have no idea how we wouldn't be able to make 100% perfect, accurate predictions, which is a way of me saying, you know, I'm a physicalist and a materialist. I think the, the material world is, is what we have. And all of the magic and the lack of explanation is all owing to a lack of understanding and sophistication on humans' parts, not something inherently mysterious about the universe. Now, one area where this sometimes breaks down, people who talk about quantum physics say, no, there is a randomness to the universe that is inherent in it. We are sure. We used to think X, Y, and Z. Now we understand quantum mechanics and know that there is some randomness. You know, there are certain things that the observation is what gives rise to the probability wave function collapsing is, is what you'll hear them say. I, as a total non-expert quantum, you know, physicist or anything like that, am always dubious when someone says, even though a lot of the smartest people in the world agree, that there is like inherent randomness or inherent unpredictability. You know, my guess is that at some point we'll find some more fundamental building block of the universe, something with dark matter or dark energy or a parallel universe that actually perfectly explains whatever it is that we currently can't explain. So my answer to your question is, yes, I definitely, you know, think that, you know, I, I'm a determinist and think that things follow physical processes and physical rules. Uh, I think that we don't even understand a tiny fraction of how those things work as advanced as science has become. Uh, and I don't know that we necessarily will ever be able to, but if you want proof that a machine can be created to do virtually any type of computation, just look at the one that sits in your skull and it's called your brain and it was given you know, rise to by evolution. And if you believe that the brain is a computational machine, albeit a very sophisticated one, then at the very least, you should be open to machines being able to do everything humans do. Of course, humans cannot predict anything with even close to perfect accuracy. And there are superhuman abilities that we've already seen computers and machines possess, not necessarily in a generalized way, usually in a more narrow focus where they're really, really good at one thing. Uh, but my answer to your question is, yeah, I think with a sufficient knowledge of the physical universe, you could predict everything. Uh, wh whether we will, you know, develop the fine-tuned instruments to get there and over what time, I have no clue. <laughs> Man, I love that answer. My mind is being fucking blown right now. Oh, literally, my hat just flew off. Um, uh, well, okay, so so on that on that front, um, <laughs> we've got we've got so much to cover. I. Uh, uh, so you mentioned kind of, you know, this super, super computer. And I think that would be cool is if you could break down, I've seen you, you tweeted once kind of this breakdown of the difference between machine learning, artificial intelligence, automation, and deep learning, because all of these concepts get seem to get jumbled together as one and the same, but they're actually not. 
Yeah, it's funny because, you know, I think I play a lot in the AI space. You play a lot in the blockchain space. And those are the two that no one understands but are such hot buzzwords. A joke that I make sometimes is if you want to raise $100 million, just choose any industry and say you have an AI-powered blockchain solution for all of their problems, <laughs> and you will just get blank checks from, like, every VC. In, uh, in 2017, yes. Nowadays, I don't know about the... Uh... You're right. The, the, the era for that in blockchain may have passed, but I think the, the AI era is sort of upon us. There are some wild statistics. I think the current estimate is that 40% of businesses that claim to be AI powered show no evidence whatsoever of AI being a material value add to their, to their execution. Um, and, and so, yeah, the answer to your question is the, part of this is because terminology is confused and conflated even in the engineering community. So I, I like to put out this graphic that I usually use. I'll, I'll try to describe it. Now I use nested I'll, circles. I'll put, I'll put that in, in, the, in the show notes as well. I have it up on my computer. Awesome. Yeah. So I use nested circles because each one is sort of a subset of the other. And starting in the outermost circle, the term that is the most broad that defines the most different processes and contains everything within it would be automation. So automation is nothing more than processing according to pre-programmed rules. Any robotic assembly line, you know, a McDonald's hamburger flipping robot, it's not AI. It is simply automation that is following pre-programmed rules. If then statements, just a lot of them, you know, in, in succession with a lot of conditions. Artificial intelligence would be the next nested circle within automation. We said automation is processing according to pre-programmed rules. Well, AI is processing according to pre-programmed rules in ways that mimic human abilities. So the speech-to-text functionality on your phone where you can dictate and it'll convert to text, or even Siri or your favorite Alexa-enabled device, those are also following pre-programmed if-then statements, just like a robotic assembly line. But since they're sort of simulating the act of hearing or speaking or things that we consider human-like qualities, we call it artificial intelligence. Machine learning, which is what most forms of AI that discussed today are based in and what is really the area of the most interest in study right now, Machine learning is processing according to pre-programmed rules in ways that mimic human abilities and allow for iterative improvement. So I think the best example here is the spam classifier on whatever email client you use. You load up Gmail for the first time, it's going to naturally and algorithmically divert certain messages away from your inbox. But as you indicate that certain messages were correctly or incorrectly labeled, it iteratively and adaptively becomes better at serving your particular spam classifying needs. And then finally, deep learning is a subset within machine learning. Deep learning is processing according to pre-programmed rules in ways that mimic human abilities and allow for iterative improvement without much human oversight. So this ends up being a bit more of a consequence than a characteristic of the architecture, but the types of machine learning models that can do a ton of the learning on their own, get their trainings and their weightings optimally set without a ton of human oversight, those are, are generally the deep learning, specifically neural networks being the most popular variety. And what is, um, it is, uh, is I guess it's AlphaGo, the the um, Google kind of um, Go player is that is that deep deep learning? 
Yeah. So first of all, I would definitely recommend watching the Netflix documentary on the Go computer first sort of beating a human and why that's so impressive. Uh, yes, absolutely. Go is, you know, any of these sophisticated game playing AIs will be deep learning. Uh, the neural networks that guide your, you know, autonomous Tesla, those will, will hail from deep learning. Uh, the deep in deep fakes comes from deep learning. Uh, deep fake is a portmanteau of deep learning and the word fake. So that is definitely one of the most common types because of its superior predictive performance of AI or ML that, that businesses are using today. And are we at a place where there are currently um, ubiquitous deep learning algorithms that we're interacting with on a regular basis? Yes. So another great stat is that in, in another study, 34% of respondents said they had interacted with an AI powered tool in the last, I forgot the time frame was, but their answers about behaviors over that time showed that 84% actually did. So people wow. definitely don't even know. And maybe that means we've passed the Turing test. That's, you know, a debate, you know, for another time. But first of all, the way you most commonly probably interact with a deep learning or, or, or a product that's powered by machine learning every day is when you interact with a chat bot, a customer service agent that is not a real person, but, but is certainly trying to pretend they are, they might even have like a little profile picture and a fake name like Brad or something in the, in the message <laughs> box. Uh, but it's actually just, you know, a, a bot that, that is talking to you and helping you with customer service. So that is certainly the most common way. The other way that you interact with deep learning all the time is through what are called recommendation engines. Netflix famously at least alleges that they save a billion dollars a year by serving you the optimal content by way of their recommendation engine and therefore causing you not to uh, um, cancel your subscription with them because you keep being shown content. If you ever wonder how LinkedIn or Facebook or Instagram or any of these YouTube, how do they keep showing you stuff that is exactly what you're interested in the exact right moment? Generally, that is an iterative, adaptive, deep learning based, uh, machine learning based recommendation engine. And then there's also a million other little things, uh, you know, targeted advertising, uh, credit applications and, and credit limits or mortgage applications. A lot of things where there's tons of data being produced uh, use, you know, deep learning. And I'd say one other way that people uh, interact with machine learning all the time, but probably in a very different way than they think. We all are familiar with trying to click through something and Google asking us, you know, identify the three stop signs or identify the three buses. And what's interesting is that actually the way CAPTCHA, uh, which is that technology or Google's reCAPTCHA, the way Google's reCAPTCHA decides if you are human is using the mouse movements in the micro moments right before you hit, you know, save or, or go or enter or anything like that. They are actually using you to train image classifiers that will be deployed for autonomous vehicles. And that's why you're always identifying things that He's are related the to streets, right? Yeah. Stop signs and all that. So really, Google doesn't need to know if you are a human by verifying stuff, but people would be kind of creeped out if websites were verifying that they weren't a robot just by the millimeter movements of their mouse. So instead, Google tells you, oh, yeah, we just need to verify that you can identify a stop sign when actually they're using that to feed or train a machine learning model that can be put in an onboard computer that would identify those things on the road. 
so wild. What's your take on, I mean, it's, there's, there's a certain inevitability that more and more of our lives are going to be dictated by machine learning and, and deep learning. Um, do you take, do you take a subjective stance on, on whether or not that's good for kind of the future of humanity? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that very much, uh, we haven't, you know, gotten around to my background or what I spend my time doing. Yet, and, you know, you <laughs> Why don't we go there? Let's see, it's been, it's been 40 minutes. I mean, usually I don't often do the backgrounds. I usually say them up front, but I thought because, and now I know because we've been going really deep on some super interesting subjects that we should definitely go back to the background and let's pause on that question. I'm just making a mohawk with my hair. I'm literally pulling my hair out right now. My mind is being blown. <laughs> I, no, I remember you used to rock the man bun a bit back, back when we were in college together. So, you know, that, that's all good to answer your question and then get back to this one. Um, I, I do, I really wear two hats uh, kind of in, in my life, or at least most of my activities can be classified in, in sort of two spaces. One is in the ethical development of artificial intelligence. So I run a 501c3 nonprofit that I started called the International Consortium for the Ethical Development of Artificial Intelligence. We go by ICED AI for short, since that's just much easier to say. And we are a nonprofit NGO with, with tech leaders from all over the world who are dedicated to exactly what our name describes, the ethical development of artificial intelligence. So we put out a podcast, have a newsletter, put on various events and, and speak and consult and, uh, you know, maybe launching a couple of other new arms for, for various companies in the space. And I also sit on a number of other AI governance and ethics, best practices, councils and committees. And you'll be seeing this become a lot more normalized soon. Not too long from now, just like right now, every company has a data breach policy every company will soon have like an AI breach policy about how to react and what to do in the case that the AI malfunctions. And, and we're really right around the corner. Companies are starting to very slowly adopt sort of stuff like this. The other world that I live in uh, is, is the, the world of, of sports betting, sports analytics, uh, sports tech, and kind of everything adjacent to that. Um, my, the only real uh, overlap is that my niche area of expertise that I speak at a lot of conferences and universities at is the evolving role of artificial intelligence in sports betting, fantasy sports, sports analytics, the business of sports and things like that. So within the sports betting space, which in the U.S. Uh, has now been legalized as of May of 2018, uh, I run an advisory firm for sports betting startups, as well as venture capital firms that are looking to deploy capital uh, and like to leverage my expertise or uh, want to look into my proprietary deal flow to source deals. And I speak at a number of different conferences on the evolving role of technology in the space, the investment landscape, uh, and am involved in just a lot of really cool discussions and kind of behind the scenes proposals that drive a lot of the really interesting uh, fan experiences that I think are going to soon come to populate the sort of fan engagement ecosystem. So, you know, really ends up that all things tech, finance, and sports, if you find something at the intersection of those, that's probably my bread and butter. But really, you know, all things AI, predictive analytics, uh, you know, I, I do a lot of teaching. I, I did a, uh, a thing with uh, NYU's 
uh, sports management grad program just last week on how to build a sports predictive model in Excel, Python, and R. And, you know, I, I kind of try to bridge it, the gaps between all these things, because I find that sports is one of the easiest on-ramps to predictive analytics for people who have even the slightest interest in math. And once you show them the power of it, they start really getting interested in other things. And that often percolates up to machine learning and AI and, and, and all that good stuff. Um, so your question, you know, um, that, that we were going back to, where do I stand? You know, do I take a subjective approach to the impact of deep learning kind of on us as a society? Uh, certainly what I'm trying to do right now is, is kind of, and I'm not alone in this, sound the alarm bells because the problem uh, or at least the complication with AI technology is that at virtually every turn, there's nothing that's totally bad or totally good. Everything, in fact, ends up usually being in proportion. The technologies with the most possible positive impact are the ones that will be the most widespread and therefore have the opportunity to be exploited or used in the most negative ways. Um, and there are so many amazing applications that we absolutely want to pursue. You know, being able to diagnose whether a tumor is benign or malignant without doing invasive surgery uh, is sort of a classic, you know, intro to machine learning problem. And that seems clearly like something that, that we would want to do. Uh, whereas the development of that exact technology will give rise to things that, you know, people with more nefarious intentions can, can definitely subvert. So I think the answer is we absolutely are going to need either regulation, you know, here are the people that are allowed or here are the types of licenses that you need to use different types of algorithms. Maybe we'll want to prevent, for example, any algorithm that functions in a black box manner from making healthcare or military related decisions. Because when someone asks you, why did the predictive model decide that the drone should, you know, drop the bomb here, you're going to want to be able to give a pretty good answer. And this just happened, by the way, Goldman Sachs and Apple, they released a credit card last year that was supposed to be all new and cutting edge. And they had an, a machine learning engine that was determining the credit limits for each uh, applicant. They had a third party vendor selected by Goldman Sachs vet their algorithm and vet their data set to make sure, you know, everything was kosher. And still what happened on the first day, women were reliably getting lower credit limits assigned to them than men, even, right, even in couples that were filing taxes jointly and had the same credit score. And even I think Steve Wozniak, said that it was a misogynistic algorithm and everyone was coming out and tech and media and sort of, you know, speaking to it, what ended up happening was that there were other features in the model that were correlated with gender that kind of snuck by the people who were, who were taking care of this. And if that can happen at Goldman and Apple, it certainly can happen at, at almost anywhere else. So I think that there is a huge need in the short term for either regulation and best practices or something i actually an article of mine was just published today that's called explainable ai uh, there's a desire to make sure that if you're using ai in certain circumstances it either a is reliant on an inherently explainable model or b some sort of post hoc model analysis can give insight into the inner working so i definitely don't have a binary answer either way there's lots of great stuff ahead for AI, but man, there are so many corners that we need to keep an eye on and things that, that need to be done 
carefully and, and conscientiously without a question. And is that happening from your standpoint or is it really just the Wild West right now? I would say that there definitely are people in the sort of elite, you know, positions in academia and in nonprofits who are aware of this and who are saying this. Sam Harris gave a great TED talk on the dangers of AI four or five years ago now. Uh, I would say, though, that, you know, Wild West almost implies that, well, I, I don't know what you mean by Wild West, but what I'll answer and say is it's not as if there's a ton of people out there saying, oh, I know how dangerous all of this AI technology is, and I just don't care, and I'm going to use it because it's profit maximizing. That is definitely not how I would characterize it, although there are certainly a ton of startups that are using the AI term to raise money in ways they shouldn't. Really, the, the fears and the way things are happening is that, for example, there's a great quote, I think it's Eliezer Yudkowsky, who says, the greatest concern about AI is that we conclude too early that we understand how it works. And that's the kind of stuff I see happening all the time. Another quote from Ian McDonald that I love is that, and I might be switching them, maybe the other one's from Eliezer Yudkowsky and Ian, but either way, we'll, the other we'll quote put is, in the that, show notes. Right, is that the, the greatest danger of AI is that we cede power to it prematurely. So the way that I see the combination of what these two quotes are driving at playing out is just like Wix and Squarespace kind of built these no code environments so that you didn't have to be a web developer to make a website. The same thing is happening in the AI machine learning space. Microsoft Azure's machine learning studio, for example, is a point and click drag and drop machine learning studio that lets you harness all these great powers without having to know how to write much code. And so we're seeing AI powered or allegedly AI powered technologies in the hands of people who increasingly don't understand how they work, don't understand what happens sort of when they go wrong. And I think that is definitely a concern. Another concern that I have, I, I usually use um, the, the old chess playing machine that was called the Mechanical Turk before it gave rise to Amazon's crowdfunding platform. As an example, and I, I think Theranos is more recently an example that I know you've become a, a lot more familiar with in, in some of your travels and speaking engagements, uh, the Mechanical Turk was a chess playing machine that purported to be a robotic chess playing machine that could see the moves and find out the optimal strategy. And it spent like 100 years traveling the world. It played against Napoleon. It played against Benjamin Franklin. And no one understood how it worked. What actually happened was there was just a compartment inside that could hold a person who was moving the levers to move the chess pieces. <laughs> and Theranos was the same thing, right? They said we are this new technology on the outside, but on the inside, they were just the same good old industry standard, commercially available technology. The same thing is happening in the AI space where people say that they have an AI powered solution. It's actually powered by, you know, stochastic simulation or some more conventional industry standard. And customers totally unwittingly are buying these products, expecting, you know, stronger predictions uh, when in actuality they shouldn't be trusting these predictions anymore. So I think there's a whole minefield of ethical dilemmas here and, and issues that are made extra difficult by, first of all, the fact that 99% of people don't understand any of it or any of the terminology. And two, the 1% that do are able to use that understanding to make money and raise venture capital and launch startups rather than, you know, giving public service announcements and things of that nature. 
Yeah, it seems it seems like um, like the core use case for um, for machine learning right now is is making money, right? Like it, it's, I guess that's you know it's interesting. It's like you you take anything and you put it inside of a system, and the system absorbs it. So we take machine learning and we throw it inside of our capitalist system, and all of a sudden, it's just optimizing for it's optimizing for dollars. Um, I, I guess the health outcomes that you mentioned are, are are interesting, but they're also driven, you know, driven by reducing healthcare costs. Let me add something on the point of healthcare because this is where it gets complicated. Uh, and then I'll, I'll, I can give you another example from uh, a highly politicized example of, of policing and police forces using this. So, you know, when we think about healthcare outcomes, at first you'd say, oh yeah, of course. Why would we not use the analytical frameworks available to us to lower the cost of healthcare or to deliver more effective results at the same cost. Those seem like perfectly noble pursuits. Another major story from last year, United Health Group was using this algorithm that was built by a company that they own uh, to make healthcare decisions with exactly this in mind. They wanted to optimize the outcomes given cost constraints. And the way they did this was they trained a data set on a bunch of existing data, and then they would take in patients and assign them a risk score and the higher the risk score, the more spending that hospital would be willing to undergo for your care. And what they found out was that, well, not what they found out, what the media found out and then became a whole controversy was that due to the data that was fed as input, black patients were receiving lower risk scores, all things equal, compared to white patients with the exact same set of symptoms. So this algorithm, if decisions were actually made by it, would have given black people substantially lower quality of care when they had the exact same you know, ailments and list of symptoms as white people. And who would you have even blamed for that? The doctor who's just following the algorithm's orders, it's hard to blame, you know, it, it really becomes unclear. In the policing space, there is a company uh, called Predpol, uh, predictive policing that offers a data-driven way to optimize policing efforts. Again, this sounds like a great idea. We're limited on police capacity. Why would we not send more police officers to places where more crime has committed in the past? Right? At first glance, that sounds kind of like a good idea. Mm -hmm. But then you start realizing that what it has the ability to do is reinforce negative feedback loops. For example, if an area is overridden with crime because police are already over-policing it and targeting minorities in that mm -hmm. area, and then the data set says, well, there's a lot of crime there, so let's send more police. Well, then it's just a self-fulfilling prophecy, and you keep feeding that new data into that same algorithm, and you actually moved in the exact opposite direction of what you meant mm. to do, or at least what your nice marketing-friendly value prop was you know, when it was in the pitch deck. So I think that's why so many of these issues are so complicated, because they sound great at first. And unless you are really intimately acquainted with algorithmic bias and unintended consequences that arise from AI, you could be a really good human being and still totally miss some of the negative things. And because we're using AI, which is automated and running fast on tons of data, the fear is deploying AI in positions where wrong predictions or wrong decisions could come about that can't necessarily be reversed, right? Once you drop a bomb, you can't really undrop it. And so that's why using AI in the healthcare field, in the military, in policing, even in autonomous vehicles on the road, you know, when a Tesla has to do an accident avoidance maneuver and choose whether to save its passenger or a pedestrian, you get this 
modern trolley problem that people still haven't, you know, quite figured out. Yeah, it's wild. I mean, the the problem the problems that can come, and also the good that can come. It's it's uh, it's it's wild. I'm at a loss for words to be honest with you, which is, but I, I think, I think that we went back, you know, it's great as we kind of went back to the beginning, which is we are, we humans are such poor predictors of outcomes that even as we're creating machines to become better at predicting outcomes there, we're almost accelerating our own inadequacies because of the data that we're feeding these machines, because the data that we're feeding these machines is inherently biased towards the way that we've done things before. It's garbage in, garbage out. People have been using that phrase in predictive modeling for a while. The best model in the world is no good on bad data. But even with good data, people are not good at anticipating unintended consequences. And there are so many examples of this, but the one that I love, because it's like a little cartoonish, but it's funny. Uh, I forgot the exact year. I think it was like 19th century uh, when Great Britain was still uh, in control of India, specifically Delhi. Uh, and that was still, you know, a British territory. And there was a problem with venomous cobras. Uh, this has been called the Cobra effect because of, of what happened. There was <laughs> I thought you were going to go with the paperclip story, so I'm glad this is a new one for me. I, I will get to the, the, the paperclip maximizer and the orthogonality thesis are, are important here, uh, and they are all related. So what happened was there were all these venomous Cobras, and the British government said, all right, here's what we're going to do. We are going to offer a bounty, you know, 40 rupees or whatever, for every venomous Cobra that is turned into a predefined location. <laughs> So what did people do? They They started started breeding breeding cobras. cobras, (laughs) So much so that the government rescinded the program and then people took the cobras that they bred and released them into the wild. So not only did the cobra population not decrease, this is what's called a perverse result. It was literally the exact opposite. The orthogonality thesis is this idea from Nick Bostrom, who also is one of the guys who talks about the paperclip maximizer. The orthogonality thesis says, first of all, we should not at all assume that machines will have desires that are in any way congruent or parallel to ours. In fact, they could be perpendicular or orthogonal, but more so that we don't even need a malevolent, malicious, omnipotent AI to lead to our demise. And the paperclip maximizer is a thought experiment where you imagine an artificial intelligence that is told that paper clips are the most valuable item in the world, you know, per gram, and that it can make a lot of money by selling paper clips. Well, guess where there's a lot of material for paper clips? In the atoms that make up all the human bodies on Earth. And guess what all the humans do on Earth? Lots of things that interfere with the manufacturing of paper clips. So what might a paperclip maximizing AI want to do? Kill all the humans and harvest their atomic structures and turn them into paperclips. And so I think that you're absolutely right that even in like the best circumstances, humans that are designing machines are going to accidentally encode some of their biases into those machines. But then even in the situations where I, you know, I keep going back, Goldman Sachs and Apple, two of the most prestigious companies in the world, they thought properly to use a third party to vet their algorithm and vet their data set ahead of time. And they still, you know, had what Steve Wozniak called a misogynistic algorithm. If they are not immune to that, you know, no one should think that they are. Uh, But I don't necessarily 
see a widespread awareness of this. And my guess is we will have something similar to the COVID pandemic, where until there's some major meltdown and until some people are truly impacted by this, it's all just going to sound like sci-fi and academia and sort of ramblings. But it's, it, that what's so crazy about that is I feel like we're currently living through it. And it's a subject that I've spoken about so many times on this show, but we're, are we not, I mean, you would know better than I do about the potentially the, whether, we're, whether one can define the algorithms that lead to recommendation engines like um, Google search and specific, more specifically like social media echo chambers, if those are artificial intelligence, machine learning or deep learning that's being used. Um, but so much of so much of our own behavior now is on an individual basis is driven by our connection to our devices and social media. And that social media is running on algorithms that I'm not sure would pass the, the, maybe they do, but the, uh, the test that you mentioned earlier about having to be able to explain how the algorithm actually works, like, are they black box algorithms, you know, that Facebook uses? Yes, first of all, there are a lot of black box algorithms that are used. There are also non-black box algorithms used by companies that keep them proprietary and confidential. They're different, but from a consumer perspective, sort of feel the same. And I, I think that, you know, the reason that this is a good, a great question, I think that could allow me to just point out truly how hard it is to try to come up with like a law or a policy or any sort of regulation here. So first of all, one positive way, and you know, let's forget about machine learning or what's AI or not. We can just use the word algorithm for now. Google uses a search algorithm. One way in which people have sort of exploited that for the benefit is they've identified search terms that people are commonly searching when they're considering suicide and in the middle of suicidal ideation and are sure to serve them not the actual information, but suicide hotline phone numbers and resources and uplifting messages and things like that. And obviously that's, you know, a great cause. And I think there's someone who is like dedicated to working on stuff like that. But to show you, Google's PageRank algorithm has been around for a while and they just had to announce, I don't have, an, I forgot the exact phrase, they are removing the autocomplete feature for certain politically related searches as we get closer to the election. Because what they can't totally control and like a human intuitable level is if you type in, you know, who should I vote for? Or, you know, the best candidate is, and you let Google autocomplete based on where you are and your history and other people around you, it's going to start, you know, auto-completing and, and serving you kind of recommendations. And so all but that's of the, what's happening just much less implicitly in all of the content that you're getting pushed anyways. Yes. No, you're, you're look, you're, you're absolutely right. At least then right. I'd, know, I'd know who Google thinks I would expect to vote for and then I could fade the machine maybe. <laughs> but that would probably predict that I would want to fade the machine and they'd give me the one that they want me to. <laughs> so, so the problem that you're pointing out here is that there's a, a Netflix special uh, called, I think, The Social Dilemma or something that, that yes, just released. Yes. A, lot, a lot of people are talking about it. People are refuting it and all that. And I think yeah, what, it does get, what, what it does get right is that you are totally outmatched by any social network that you log on to. If you, right, anything, any data points that you think you're going to throw off the prediction engine with, generally they can account for that. 
I will say, I think it's DuckDuckGo, I believe, or it could be a different browser that tries to enable privacy, not by blocking web browsing activity, but by every time you open up a website, it opens up 40 other websites associated with a specific persona that you choose. So if you want the internet to think you're a 45-year-old woman, then every time you open up ESPN, this browser will open up Chanel and Louis Vuitton.com and Vogue.com and like whatever, you know, people do. And, and, and so there's efforts to kind of go back and forth. I think the answer, you know, generally to the question is that Way, there are so many ways that we don't realize that either our data is being leveraged against us, kind of weaponized against us. It, you know, everyone has, I think, long since figured out if, if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. That's no longer insightful to say. That's some sort of a given. Five or 10 years ago, that actually was insightful to say. People didn't understand what is this Facebook thing? How do they offer it for free? Um, and, and I think that, you know, the, the answer, look, a lot of people, not a lot, a few people in the AI space are starting to talk about how do AI products, how does trust in AI models, how do predictive engines that make decisions for people, how do those fit into the sort of cultural expectations for consumer agency in the decision-making process? And it's not entirely clear how much of people's decisions, how much people even want to make their own decisions. Of course, everyone says, I want full autonomy. I want to make all my own decisions all the time. But many, and I would say most people's browsing behavior and purchasing behavior says that they love to be told what to do or at least nudged in the right direction. And nudges are kind of the latest in the, you know, Malcolm Gladwell type universe of behavioral economic phenomena where it turns out that just nudging people in a direction at the right time can be one of the best ways for a, a company to produce a, a particular output. Uh, I think that AI is only just bringing this more into the forefront. You are absolutely right. We have been at the whims of the people who control the devices and the engines and the platforms through which we source all of our information and, and talk to all of our friends and everything. And I don't really know. I think, you know, explainable models are helpful, but at the end of the day, right, people don't even read the terms of service on anything they click. So I would expect that sort of behavior to continue. People just want products to work. Probably they're not going to look under the hood at how they work and how it's impacting their autonomy and agency as a consumer. They're, they're just going to take the recommendations and go with them. So I don't really, my, my answer to the question of whose responsibility should this be is I don't know. I'm always against overregulation and federal involvement in things that they don't understand. Uh, but we definitely are getting to a point where these tools will be in more and more people's hands. You know, it used to be that only Mark Zuckerberg and Larry Page could create, you know, Google and Facebook and companies like that. But we're democratizing access to these tools. And, you know, I saw an 11 year old on LinkedIn who had a coding portfolio up that is way better than anything I've ever done in like 12 different languages. So we're in a new era and way more people than ever have a sort of stake or a say or an ability to do things. Um, I don't know where, where it ends up or, or kind of what the best way to balance the upsides with the downsides is. Yeah. That, that 11 year old, it's like, you know, Naval Ravikant speaks about, um, you know, technology literacy, right. And how that's, that should be the new literacy. So 
it will be interesting to see a whole generation of tech technologically native from a code standpoint. I mean, we all grew up at our age now. We we had the opportunity to grow up understanding all of these things fundamentally from a young age. I didn't I didn't um, research it until I started getting older. But I feel like kids these days should all learn how to code. They should all understand the languages behind the algorithms. Um, not only that, I mean, you know, we're now, I, I think now in my everyday life, not just in my technical life, you know, when, I, when I'm cooking something new, if I don't know anything, I, I just Google it or I look it up on YouTube or anytime, anytime I do something new now, I Google common mistakes made on the first time doing X. Yeah. And I wish I had those tools available to me as a young child, you know, and I certainly think that there will be people who make use of all that time, you know, up in their room, you know, at young ages and, and really, really do some fantastic things. And like you also mentioned, there's just an embedded technical literacy that hopefully. Yeah, for sure. And then the, I have to point out the flip side of that, which is the best learnings come from making mistakes. You know, like if you if you want to get to know a neighborhood, go get lost. And, and you'll figure it out over time as you find your way back. So there's, there's so much to unpack here. I mean, we've, we've been chatting for a while now. I, um, I mean, I just, I, I'm, I would love to have you back on the show at some point again in the near future. I'm, I'm like, what's coming to mind for me is, you know, it's ironic, like re religious, like religiosity comes to mind, like the idea of surrendering to a higher power, surrendering to God, and then bridging that to the question of like, is God just that supercomputer that you mentioned at the very beginning that has been operating since the, the beginning of time at a level that understands and interprets all data that's that's available in the universe over that period of time? And is that ultimately what, like are religions ultimately then right in determining like just surrender to the universal power and does free will even truly exist? Because we're seeing just how much people don't want choice. You know, we don't want choice. And this is a constant question in like in movies that come up, right? Like, you know, Tenet that just came out. Spo spoiler alert for anyone that hasn't seen Tenet. But the lead actor asked a question, you know, after dropping this bullet, like in reverse time or whatever. Well, if if it's if the bullet's moving backwards in time, like would it ever happen? Would it you know, is it already predetermined that I was going to drop the bullet? And she's like, well, you had to have put your hand there to catch the bullet in order for the bullet to have dropped. So there's this element of free will. And I'm, I'm rambling because I, it's the age old questions that I always, well, let me tell, I'll tell you my thoughts on the two things that you just hit upon. One of which is free will versus determinism. One in which is kind of simulation. Are we living in a simulation? Yeah, exactly. So to answer your second question, and I mean, I personally, you know, I don't see how there's room in our physics or our world for the conventional libertarian definition of free will, uh, which is that you are the author of your own conscious desires and can act according to your, your own desires. I think that's kind of crazy. You know, Schopenhauer said you can will, you, you can choose what, I'm sorry, he says, I'm forgetting the Schopenhauer quote at this point, but basically no, what his well, point is, is that- Should we look it point, up? I'm going to look it up point, as you yeah, go, go ahead. What, what it basically is, is that like you can have what you want, but you can't want what you want. Uh, there's something that he says much more articulately than me, which is pointing out the fact that even if you have the sensation of, oh, I wanted a cookie, and so I had a cookie, well, why did you want that cookie in the first place? And, you know, I think that it's it's interesting to- Try to trace back any decision you've ever made that has been truly free of nature and nurture. 
And it's hard to do. It's almost impossible. Every decision and every action you take, you can usually trace back to some combination of your genes and your upbringing, neither of which you had any say in. And, and so I end up landing on that, you know, more determinist side. The compatibilist version of free will is what a lot of people seem to believe, which is you have free will if you can act in a certain way without a different force preventing you from doing so. So under that definition, if I want an ice cream sandwich and, you know, there's no Dementor that flies in from Azkaban to like hop in the way of me and my freezer and I, I eat that ice cream, by the compatibilist version of free will, I would have free will. But to me, the fact that I did not author the desire to even have that ice cream in the first place is it makes it tough for the argument. And I'm going to pause you before you go to the metaverse question um, or to, you know, are we living in a simulation? So Schopenhauer said, man can do what he wants, but he cannot will what he wills. There you go. And you nailed it. I mean, you, you absolutely nailed it. And in, in my yoga teacher training of all places, we had a conversation. Um, actually, I should get I should get Sam on. Sam was my yoga teacher, wrote this book on happiness. And, uh, you know, we, he, we asked the question of basically like, the brain stimulus, there have been experiments that have shown that the decision is made before you consciously are aware that you've made the decision. So what's happening in the wiring of your brain when you're like, I want that ice cream sandwich? You know, you, you only realize after the fact that you want the ice cream sandwich and you've already decided biochemically that you want the ice cream sandwich. So what has led to that initial tick of the unconscious decision being made before it's made conscious? It's a really, really tough question. Right. And, and, you know, to go back at the very beginning of the conversation, I said, I, I'm a physicalist and a materialist. Unless you believe there is a soul or that consciousness is part of some special thing in the brain that is, you know, not just what the physical matter is, it's hard. Like, where could that ever come from if not, you know, the series of the state of the universe in the previous state is exactly the one that would give rise to what gives rise to you wanting, you know, that ice cream. And I think it's a great question. And, you know, I, I think that sometimes when I say this, people say like, okay, so why, why don't you just sit on your couch all the time, you know, if there's no free will? And, and my answer to that is, well, look, I have the sensation of free will. I certainly have the illusion of it. Sam Harris likes to say that even the illusion of free will is an illusion, which is another interesting point. But I have the sensation of free will and I have the sensation that when I decide things and they go well, I derive gratification from it. So I'm going to keep enjoying that as long as my biochemical processes provide the endorphins that makes that enjoyable. And I think it is only utility maximizing to do so, even if you logically disagree. You know, we mentioned before how hard it is to have consistent viewpoints. People live with cognitive dissonance, you know, all the time. And so my approach is, yeah, I can't really explain it, but I'm going to enjoy the sensation of free will, uh, even if I don't necessarily believe it makes sense. Uh, to go to your other question about, you know, I, I, I didn't mention the metaverse, but I am going to bring it up here because I think it's an interesting point. You know, at first, many people who are inclined to even go down the simulation hypothesis route particularly from a scientific perspective, those are almost always people who, you know, are, are atheist or agnostic or who think that, you know, the concept of an unjustified God believed in, in the absence of evidence is so silly, except once you start thinking about the simulation hypothesis more and more, it starts to get hard to differentiate between, you know, the God that was the simulator and the God of, you know, the Bible. 
Now, obviously, the big difference is that the God who would be the simulation or the simulator didn't, you know, leave us a list of 10 rules that have to be followed that were passed to Moses on a mountain. And if you don't follow that, right. So well, not that I, but if, it, if the rules emerged, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> so what gets interesting to think about is uh, there's this concept of the metaverse that I'm not sure if everyone's familiar with, but Epic Games in particular has been driving toward as they make Fortnite way more than just a game. Fortnite now hosts 10, 11 million person concerts in, you know, simulated virtual reality. Uh, their Unreal Engine is one of the most powerful pro graphical processing engines on which a ton of video games are made. And they have made no secret that they see Fortnite as a platform rather than as just a game and as possibly a stepping stone to the metaverse. What is the metaverse? It's a hypothesized virtual shared space where we all exist and interact through our avatars. Those could be photorealistic avatars that resemble us. They could be, you know, Mario Party type looking characters and absolutely anything in between. And the idea is similar to Ready Player One and the world that exists in there. You know, the metaverse will be something that is persistent and ubiquitous and unlimited and synchronous. So you can hop out of physical reality and, and into digital reality anytime. And if you want to watch a sporting event and you want to transact using digital tokens, whether blockchain based or some successor to that, that will all be fully functional. If you want to try on clothes with your avatar, but then have that actual clothing item set to your real house, in physical reality, all of these things, you know, are expected to take place in the metaverse. Now, what people talk about is that the metaverse or really any virtual world could be the catalyst for an AI renaissance. Because if you are trying to develop an artificial intelligence that can interact with the world just as humans do, where would be a really good place to not just deploy one, but an infinite number of those? in a virtual simulated reality where there are actually humans interacting. And so that all means that we are not at all necessarily far off from being able to strap on, you know, a virtual reality goggles, a haptic bodysuit, and an omnidirectional treadmill and see and hang out with our friends in virtual reality and also have that virtual reality populated by software agents and artificial intelligence powered avatars that we can't differentiate from real people. And suddenly you start saying, okay, hold on. That sort of is like the simulation hypothesis that people have about what my life is right now. Are we just making a simulation within a simulation? I'm getting like Rick and Morty vibes from all of this. And, right. And, and so what you start to, what you start to think about is, is first of all, you know, might we be, you know, in that place now? How would you know if you had been offered virtual reality goggles the moment you were born and have never taken them off since and have just been in a simulated reality and, and you know, one day you'll wake up in your base reality? And even if we could prove that we are currently in base reality, you started this question by sort of asking, like, what is the almost AI version of God? Uh, and what I think would be interesting is, you know, I don't know who will own the metaverse and who will own all the data, but were there to be an entire digital universe largely populated by artificial beings in which real humans are having experiences that to them are just as salient as the ones in real life? Well, certainly if there's a person who can 
turn off that entire metaverse with the flick of a switch or change gravity with the flick of a switch or make the sky blue instead of green or change everyone's experiences so that what they experience in the metaverse would be equivalent to a trip on LSD in the physical universe. That person is pretty damn close to what we would call God. They'd be omniscient, they'd be omnipotent and all of that stuff. And so I think it's a fascinating question that, that everyone should have a little bit more of an eye toward. Yeah, absolutely. And a fascinating answer as well. Um, and exploration. And, you know, I always, this is why I'm so fundamentally drawn to, I think yoga philosophy is, you know, the story of, of the Bhagavad Gita, the conversation between Arjuna and Krishna, the, the human manifestation of, of the God of God, basically the Jesus figure in, in Hindu mythology. Um, you know, Arjuna basically says, like, show me your real self. And Krishna gives him a pair of virtual reality goggles or, you know, a psychedelic substance or something, if you want to think about it literally. And for the first time, Arjuna can see the whole universe in Krishna, all of the good and the bad and the ugly and just, you know, soldiers getting chewed up by weird monstrous claws and teeth and, you know, people falling in love and flowers and peace and all of it happening at once all the time. And, and so, you know, yoga has this concept of Maya and Maya is the illusion. And the idea of, of yoga is that we are all living in an illusion. We are living in the Maya and the Maya is all around us, but it's not the true reality. There is a true reality behind the reality. And then when you start to think about that, there's probably a reality behind or underneath that reality. And so it is this kind of like concentric circles of reality. Right. And, and you know, so in that same line of thinking, they talk about Indra's net, which is a, an infinite net at the intersection of which are these little jewels. And each jewel represents, you know, the encoding for all of the information in, in the entire universe. And there are a lot of people who believe things like, you know, the, the universe is really just a two-dimensional encoding on the surface of a black hole and, 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 and all this kind of stuff. And, and I think that there's a lot of interesting stuff there. One of the ways that people have talked about the simulation hypothesis, I think a little less elegantly than Nick Bostrom, but in a way that still makes sense, is they say, imagine any point in the future. As long as we don't destroy ourselves or stop developing technologically, we will be able to create tons of high fidelity simulations of past civilizations, if nothing else for educational purposes or for entertainment purposes, just like we used to play The Sims and Roller Coaster Tycoon and all that. And so, right, yeah, the best, right? You can, you can be nice or you can be mean and charge $2 to go to the bathroom and lock people in and, you know, everything in between, <laughs> right? But, but, but more seriously, so what happens is people are trying to sort of sort out, I think, where they stand on some of these things and they start to realize, well, if we create, uh, if not too long from now, there is just, it is the status quo in educational circles that the way you learn about the past is you simulate former civilizations. That, that is totally possible. Well, you could see a ton of kids in fifth grade simulating past civilizations. And of those simulated civilizations, since there could be an infinite number, some number of those will develop simulations within themselves and some number of those within themselves and some of those within themselves. So if you were to step back as God and throw a dart at all of the different base reality at the middle and then all of the kind of simulations that grow outside of it, 
what are the odds that your dart would hit the base reality? And what are the odds that your dart would hit a simulated reality? And people say you should take a similar probabilistic view to the likelihood that we are living in a simulation as opposed to, you know, a, a, a base reality. And I think that it's, it's like one of those things where, you know, the solipsistic point of view is you can't prove that anything outside of your own consciousness is real and, 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 and all of that. And there are all these really just fascinating metaphysical philosophical arguments that for so long, for literally the entirety of human history, were seen as totally abstract, not relevant to reality. And yet here we are on the precipice of, you know, there are AI agents that can produce text that is just as convincing as any human text. And now the debate remains, you know, does that mean they actually understand or can comprehend? Um, so I think the simulation argument or hypothesis, at the very least, it's a great one to discuss because when you use good evidence and good reasoning, most people who haven't thought about it before realize wait, hold on, maybe the world really is not as it seems. And I think any type of, you know, argument that, that helps people realize that is very helpful. One that I love is the fact that color is a concept that we find so fundamental to our experience. Like you describe basically everything almost predominantly by its color. And yet color doesn't exist in the external world. Color only exists once the sun has light that reflects off something that's interpreted by your brain as a particular color. If somehow there was a world that could be observed by a non-observer, which of course makes no sense, it would be colorless because the color exists, you know, in our minds and in our brains and in our optic nerves, not in the universe itself. And what you were talking about is not only some of this, but the, the panpsychist view that a lot of people you know, are, are into partially or, or, or heartedly, um, you know, that, that I think often comes a lot from the, the type of teachings. And the last thing I just wanted to mention on that point, I think a lot of what people enjoy out of yoga, whether they realize it or not, is mindfulness, is the mindfulness they get from the discipline and the practice and the paying attention to the breathing and one's own thoughts and all that. And what's so interesting is that you, you started out this particular question that I've been rambling on for a while. You, you mentioned this concept of an illusion. And I think that, at least for me, one of the most interesting things about the mindfulness journey is that one of the goals could be described as doing away with the illusion of the self. We all have this illusion that there is a persistent self within us, a thinker of thoughts, a seer of sights, you know, and all that. And what's interesting is just like the way you can't attain happiness by pursuing it, you can't quite attain a ego death or a dissolution of the, you know, illusion of the self by pursuing it. But I think by thinking along the lines that you've described, it makes people start to realize, okay, I have this sensation that this is how causality works, that this is why cause and effect leads to my happiness and sadness. Uh, but actually, almost all of those intuitions are, are totally upside down. <laughs> Lloyd, thanks for coming on the show, man. I really appreciate it. This was so fun. Uh, thank you so much. Where can people find you? Yeah, no, my pleasure, Mark. So uh, depending on what they're interested in, uh, you know, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Medium are probably uh, the, the most common places. Uh, Lloyd, L-L-O-Y-D, Danzig. You can probably just Google my name or on, on any of those. And then I have my own website, LloydDanzig.com, where I, I just, you know, put all the articles and 
and speaking things like that. But uh, yeah, I always welcome, you know, discussion and reach out and I've gotten into some fascinating discussions over DM on Twitter with people I've never met in my life. And I, I, I always, you know, I think those are some of the most enjoyable. Disclaimer, no acid was taken before the recording of this episode. <laughs> you know, you might need to put that disclaimer at the beginning. Otherwise, people might not believe it. Sam, but let's move that out is to the true. Front. <laughs> All right, brother. I'll speak to you soon. Thanks a lot, Mark. All right. Hello, Lookup listeners. One final note before we go. Thank you again for tuning in. Going forward, we'll be releasing new episodes of Lookup every Wednesday morning, Eastern time. If you're getting value from this podcast and you want to give back to support our future, please take a moment to contribute to our community on Patreon. Our Patreon contributors have access to some great additional perks, including one-on-one meditations with yours truly. I've shared the link in the show notes below the episode. You can also find the show notes to this and previous episodes on our website, www.thelookuppodcast.com. If you can't contribute at this time, there are other helpful ways to give back. You can share this episode on social media, tag me, and or leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Trust me, every review goes a long way. If you want more content, including more of my personal thoughts, you can follow me on social media. My handle on both Instagram and Twitter is at Wark Meinstein, W-A-R-C-M-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N. Or you can subscribe to the Lookup Weekly Newsletter on my website. I'm also very responsive to email, so feel free to send questions, booking inquiries, speaking requests, and sponsorship opportunities to M-A-R-C at thelookuppodcast.com. Finally, for those of you that don't know, I lead virtual yoga, breathwork, and meditation classes, as well as one-on-one coaching and teaching sessions, which you can book from the website or my social media accounts. Thank you to Sam Palumbo and Patch Kid Music for the great intro and outro tunes and for the sound engineering. Thank you, brother. And thank you to all of you listeners for continuing to support the show, for tuning in, and I hope that you've been enjoying this journey as much as I have. Mm-hmm.